Good morning, everyone. I, I hope you're excited this morning. It is the first morning that we are officially an autonomous local church. After last Sunday, we were commissioned. Yeah, amen. That is, uh, that, that is to, to God alone that is receiving the glory for that. We are thrilled that he has allowed us to get to this point. Um, we're like a little bird just thrown out of the nest, and here we are now. Um, flapping our own wings and learning to fly. Uh, the, the, the good thing is, is that we don't have to invent anything new or try anything different. We just keep doing what we're doing. We preach the infallible, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient Word of God. Uh, we aim to obey it with our lives and love one another as Christ has loved us. And it's amazing how the Lord has blessed us as we've just tried to do that. Um, this morning, I'm particularly excited because we're starting a study on the greatest life that has ever been lived, the greatest person that has ever walked the earth. It is the most analyzed life, the most studied life, the most well-known life of any man in human history. Uh, people have gone back to study this life again and again and again. They can't get enough of the life of Jesus Christ it has been changing people from generation to generation. The story of the life of Christ has given hope and transformation to millions of people throughout all ages. And this morning, we get to launch into a study of the Gospel of Mark. You can grab a Bible. If you don't have one, there might be one under a seat nearby. You can take that. If you don't have a Bible that you own, that's a gift from us to you. Take it home and use it. And uh, right now, I want you to open it up to the book of Mark. If you grab that one from underneath your chair, it's on page 836. As we uh, live our lives, we encounter stories. And there are some stories that feel a little bit distant, that we don't quite resonate with. There are some stories, on the other hand, that seem to strike a chord with us. They draw out something deep within us that inspires us or changes us challenges us. Uh, we've encountered such stories throughout our lifetimes, and we sometimes like to reread them or retell those stories. Well, we get to study the greatest of all stories. It's the greatest story that is ever told, but the reality is about this story, and it is not made up, it's not fiction, this actually happened, and it is the story that makes sense of every other story. It is the story of the life that will make sense of your life. And if you're not a Christian and you're walking into this room, you showed up at the perfect time. Because right now we're launching into a study about Jesus Christ, the life of Jesus Christ. And if you are not quite sure what you think about Jesus Christ, you're maybe interested in Him, uh, you're maybe intrigued by the things that He taught, maybe even you've been one of those people who uh, like the teachings of Jesus, but you're not quite sure that you're willing to submit to Him as your Lord and your Savior and start calling yourself a Christian and live for Him and His glory, this is the book for you. I'm so glad you're here. And, and what I've been praying and, and actually what I've been wondering is how will Jesus change your life? I wonder what He will do with you. I mean, you read the book of Mark... It is not uncommon that Jesus jumps off the page and grabs you by the hand and leads you down a path you not, might have never thought that you would go. I wonder 
for you, non-Christian, or for you asking questions, and even for you, Grace Rancho, you who have come to hear the Word of God, and now we're going to hear about the life of Christ, I wonder what the living Christ will do with you in this study. I have a great hope here. I have a lot of anticipation that Jesus wants to change lives. I know that's true. I've, I've read the Bible. I know what's happened through history. I know what Jesus has claimed here, that He is a Savior, that He comes to change lives and change hearts and change eternal destinies, and that He has been doing that one person after another. I know that He wants to change lives. I know that He loves to save sinners. I know that He came to seek and save the lost. I know He came to serve Not to be served, as Mark 10.45 says, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I know that he will change lives. I have high hopes that he might, in fact, change yours. I wonder if you'll be like the agnostic Greek scholar, Dr. E. V. Ryu. He was a Greek scholar who had just finished translating Homer's Iliad and Odyssey into modern English. He's 60 years old when his uh, publisher asked him if he would consider translating the Greek Gospels into English. He agreed. His son, hearing that his agnostic father was going to be translating the four Gospels, wrote down this. He said, it will be interesting to see what Father makes of the four Gospels, but it will be more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Father. And it didn't take long. Before the year was out, Dr. E. V. Rue, the Greek scholar, a lifelong agnostic, upon his encounter with Jesus Christ, was converted. He became a Christian. He gave his life to Jesus Christ and lived out the rest of his days as a devoted follower of Jesus. This is what Jesus does. And I could tell you story after story about people who encounter Jesus in the written Word, reading through the Gospels, whose lives get changed. His life just commands your attention. His life confronts humanity. His life answers the deepest questions that we have to ask. In in studying the life of Christ, our lives actually begin to make sense. We get to know what God is like, who we are, what God has created us for, what are we supposed to do. And if you've ever asked any of those questions, and I'm sure you have, then in this study you are going to encounter something that will scratch the deepest itch you've ever had. It is the it is the the, the thing you've been longing for. It's what we've been craving. It's what we've been hungering all given to us in God's holy word. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ in this gospel according to Mark. How many countless lives have been transformed by Jesus? Several here, right? I get the privilege of hearing testimonies on a pretty regular basis, and the consistent theme is that Jesus changes lives. He transforms hearts. People who are cold and stingy become warm and generous The curmudgeons become those people who sing with joy. The the people who like to isolate themselves come out of the caves of their lives and begin to interact with love toward others. Jesus just changes people. And not only changes external behaviors, He changes eternal destinies. People who are destined to face their Maker without forgiveness and face judgment in hell for their sin, 
become forgiven. And their lives begin to overflow with love to God for what He's done and love to people for what He's accomplished in in His life. And they want to show the love of Christ to others. This is what Jesus does. He's He's like a... the electricity that a light bulb gets plugged into. As soon as He touches us, we come to life. We, we come to see. We come to know. We come to live the way that we were intended to actually live. And so, I have high hopes. I hope you do as well. I hope you are praying that this will be a time in the life of our church where upon our encounter with Jesus Christ, we get transformed. That in beholding Jesus Christ, we are transformed into His likeness. And I'm also praying that the people who are not quite sure about Jesus and what He is and what He's done and what He came to do and all these questions we have around the person and work of Jesus Christ, just by working through this book, the Gospel according to Mark, we can just let the Word speak for itself and we can encounter Him and that I think that people can see who He is and in that faith, Repent of their sins, make Jesus their Lord, and experience the transformation I've been talking about. How is Jesus going to change you? Think about that. How do you even want Jesus to change you? If you have a living encounter with the risen Christ, what would you ask of Him in your own life? How do you want to grow? I want you, church... To think about this question, we're going to be in this Word again and again being confronted with the character, with the works, with the the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to come to Him with anticipation thinking, Jesus, You can change me. Because we all have areas in our lives that we need to grow in, don't we? We all have areas that we need Jesus to do transformative work. We cannot change ourselves. We're looking to Christ Let's come with anticipation that as we look at His Word and let it wash over us, it cleanses us and changes us and transforms us. And so we're praying. Would you pray along with me? Let's pray that Jesus changes our lives as we read His Word and that Jesus saves those who are lost and brings them into His fold. The Gospel of Mark. You opened your Bibles, right? We're there in chapter 1. We're going to begin the study going through it in order, but before we do, I want to do a little bit of background, and we're not going to get very far into the actual text. We'll look at just simply verse 1. Before we even get there, though, let's think about some background. Mark. we got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is likely the earliest, and it's definitely the shortest. Mark is action-packed. If you want a word that's repeated again and again in the book of Mark, it's the word immediately. As soon as you start reading it, you'll see immediately, immediately, immediately. Matthew, uh, by contrast, will have sections of Jesus' teaching where pages, if you have one of those red letter Bibles, it's all red because it's all just the teachings of Christ. Uh, There's less of those in Mark because Mark is less focused on all the things Jesus taught, although that is there in the book. He's more focused on what Jesus did. Who is he? What did he do? What did he accomplish? It, of course, is written by a man named Mark. It's the man John Mark. He comes up in other places in the Bible. He appears in the book of Acts. Uh, He was a close companion of the apostles. Uh, You remember Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey in Acts, 
and Mark went along with them. But if you also remember what happened there, as they were going from place to place at one point, kind of in the middle of their missionary journey, Mark dropped out. Uh, For whatever reason, he didn't want to go any further, went back and dropped out. It didn't really sit well with Paul. Paul, when the next missionary adventure came up, didn't want to take Mark with him, and so they split. Barnabas went one way, Paul went the other way. Barnabas took Mark with him. Mark was very closely associated with the apostles. He also Peter. In the book of 1 Peter, you get to the end of chapter 5, and Peter is writing, um, and he mentions Mark. Mark apparently was with Peter in Rome when Peter was writing the first letter that he wrote, 1 Peter. Now, it's also clear from church history, it's kind of interesting, that Peter and Mark had developed a very close relationship, a companionship. And when Mark went to write down the life of Christ, his main source was Peter. In fact, some of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Papias, Papias, he's the earliest church father, mentions that Peter would have been the source of Mark, and that Mark, everything Mark wrote down, he got from the eyewitness, Peter. Peter is the first eyewitness, or the one that had seen all the the events of the life of Christ, and Mark, who stayed close to Peter, wrote down all the things that Peter had told him to write down. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Origen, all these early church fathers make the same point that Mark was writing down Peter's teachings and Peter's experiences and Peter's eyewitness accounts. So this is uh, very likely one of the early, it is one of the earliest, maybe the earliest account, and it is given the source of Peter who was the closest to Jesus Christ. He was uh, one of the inner three. He knew Christ intimately. And this is very accurate. Obviously, it is the Holy Word of God inspired uh, by the Holy Spirit. And so here we have a picture of Jesus Christ written by Mark uh, and given the direction of the Apostle Peter himself. Well, why would he write? Sometimes we don't even think about these questions. What would, what would cause a man like Mark to sit down and to write this this letter, to write this book, to write this gospel. Uh, the, the obvious answer is that people need to know who Jesus was. Okay? They need to know who Jesus is, and so he's going to give the life of Christ. He's going to tell the story. He's not going to add a lot of extra detail. Mark is just going to get right to the point. He's going to tell you who Jesus is. But there's a couple sub-reasons that would have drawn Mark to, in, in, in Peter with him to want to write this book. Here's reason number one. First, At this time of writing, it's probably in the 60s AD, at this time of writing, already in the church, there's beginnings to have some some forms of heresy beginning to sprout up. Did Jesus really come as a man? Or is he just some spirit that kind of revealed himself in the form of human, but he wasn't actually a human? Uh, Did he actually die? Uh, Some of these questions are being asked. Um, is he truly God? I know he was a man, but was he really God? Some people are asking those questions. Is he really who he says he is? And so we want to clarify those things. So Mark and Peter write down the basics of the life of Christ. Here's what he did. Here are some of the things he said. Here's his life. Here's a picture. Here's a sketch of his life so that you could know who he claimed to be. Secondly, though, and this is really a fascinating one, is that also what's happening in the 60s AD, 
uh, provides a good context for how we're going to understand Mark. Nero. You heard that name? Famous, or should we say infamous, for having been one of the most cruel emperors ever to rule in any place at any time. He's ruling in Rome at the time of Mark's writing. The historians say when he first began to rule, he was somewhat responsible. Before uh, about mid-60s, he began to go off the rails. Um, uh, Kind of maniac type stuff he begins to do. Uh, He would tax uh, childless couples heavily to get money from them. He would make false accusations upon the rich and then have an excuse to confiscate their wealth. He, at public banquets, would invite people to commit suicide. He was a bizarre figure in history, but at first, his bizarre behavior had nothing to do with Christians. They were kind of largely ignored. 64 AD, a fire sweeps through Rome. The people of Rome begin to think that Nero did it. Nero did it on purpose. He was, and we still have a saying that's come down through the ages to us today from this event, he was fiddling while Rome burned. Now during this aftermath of the fire, once it was finally all done and the people were all suspicious that Nero did it, uh, Nero hatched a devilish plan. The plan was this, the Christians would be the scapegoats. Christians are already marginalized at this point. They were already misunderstood. Already they were called atheists because they didn't recognize the deity of Caesar. They thought that they were cannibals because they took the Lord's Supper together. Uh, They were called antisocial because they would not participate in pagan rituals that the Romans did. The Christians were already misunderstood. They were a good target for the blame for all the people of Rome to get against them. That's what Nero's plan was. So he blamed the Christians. It was the Christians who set the fire. It was the Christians who set the fire. And then because of that, he had an excuse to point all his devilish power against the church. That's what he began to do. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus, writing a contemporary history of the time, this is happening during the time of his writing, he wrote this, Nero fabricates scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then, on their information, large numbers of them were condemned, not so much for, incend- for incendiarianism as for their antisocial tendencies. Their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as a substitute for daylight. This is happening in the 60s. Nero is pointing his insane power against Christians, doing everything to blame them He wants to wipe them out. He is killing them in farcical ways, making them the laughingstock of society. He wants to eliminate, he wants to stamp out any Christian presence. That's what's happening. And Mark is writing to Christians, guess where? In Rome. Christians in Rome. He's writing to suffering Christians. He's writing to persecuted Christians. 
And he's writing to these Christians who he believes need to get a picture of a suffering, serving Savior. Now, now what he's not going to do is make up anything. He's going to just simply relay what actually happened. But he's going to give particular emphasis. He's going to highlight that which would encourage Christians who are suffering. He wants to encourage them. I mean, when you read the Gospel of Mark, they read that the Christians of the 60s who would have been the first to read this book, they would have encountered a suffering Savior. They would have encountered, as they read, someone who suffered like they suffered. They would have encountered someone who is tempted just like they have been tempted. A Savior who went in the wilderness. A Savior who experienced hunger. A Savior who was misunderstood. A Savior who was mislabeled. A Savior who was maligned, eventually was betrayed and went to the cross. They would have read that and they would have identified with Him and they would have said, wow, our Savior has suffered too. Our Savior went through these things as well. We have a Savior who is not so distant that He can't identify with us. They would have read Mark and they would have been so encouraged. Jesus went there first. If we've suffered it all for our faith, our Lord was there first and before us. This is what they would have experienced in reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time. I mean, they would have read about Jesus teaching his disciples that they need to be taking up their crosses. And that wouldn't have been metaphorical for them. I mean, they had probably seen some of their own friends literally taking up their crosses to be crucified. They were encouraged that this is the path that our Savior first blazed. And if he suffered, if he was tempted... If he was misunderstood, if he was maligned, if he eventually died, if he was betrayed, then I should also, as I follow him, expect something similar. That's the cultural context that we find ourselves as we read Mark. Now, I want to zoom out a little bit today. I want to fast forward to today. The names have changed. Nero's not in charge. Some of the issues aren't exactly identical. But the fundamental issues have not changed. Modern world is still ravaged by sin, is it not? The modern world is still under the curse. We see it in every nation, in every government, in every city, in every household, in every marriage, in every child, in every human heart, there is the presence of sin. Sin. What what would cause a lunatic like Nero to do what he did, the seeds of that principle exist in humanity still today. Why? Because it's the principle of sin. Sin. Sin was reigning in the hearts of men then, and it was causing those who wanted to turn away from sin to follow Christ to be misunderstood. That was happening then. And friends, that happens now. The biggest problem in the universe. Sin is the problem underneath every other problem. This is the great plague of the earth. This is the scourge. This is a disease. It has infected everyone. We're all touched by it. And the fundamental reason for all pain, for all suffering, for all dysfunction, for all despair, for all sadness, 
is that we live in a sin-cursed world. I want to start with here, we're going to have three headings. We're going to start with this, and hopefully these headings will help us to understand the Gospel of Mark as we jump in. Here's our first heading. The biggest problem is sin. The biggest problem is sin. We can't understand the coming of Christ until we understand the problem that He came to solve. None of the Gospel will make any sense if we don't understand what is it that Jesus is coming to do. And so we must start, even before we get into the text, understanding that the biggest problem in the universe, the biggest problem in your life is sin. So let's talk about sin. Let's talk about sin for a little bit. Sin, where did it begin? Many of us will say uh, Genesis 3, it began in the Garden of Eden, and that would be right in one sense and wrong in another. That's the first place it entered into humanity, but that's not the origin of sin. Sin began in the angelic world. Sin began before Genesis 3. Sin began when God created all the angels, all the heavenly hosts. There was one that He set aside as different and above all the rest. Ezekiel 28 paints the picture of a mighty angel, probably the greatest of all his creatures that he made. Beautiful, wonderful, bedazzling creature, ranking high, doing something like the prime minister's role in ruling the universe. There was probably no other creature greater than this one who, as we know, got filled with his own pride and turned against God. We know him now as Satan. He's the adversary in his greatness, in his beauty. He wanted to dethrone God. Ezekiel 28, 17 says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. His own beauty caused him to think foolishly. He thought he could overthrow God. And in the moment that in his pride he rebelled against God, God responded by Banishing him from heaven. He was banished from heaven. No longer could he retain the same role that he had. But what we do know is this. This is a very important point. What we do know is that though he was banished from heaven, he retained a certain power and authority over the fallen world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 He's described as the lowercase g, God of this world. Ephesians 2.2, he's described as the prince. It's a kind of authority, the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5.19, the whole world, it says, lies in the power of the evil one. This amazing, dazzling, beautiful creature that God had made over all His other angelic hosts, created to stand in the presence of God, to run the universe in service to God, turned against God, incited a rebellion. Now the Scriptures go on to describe that one-third of the angels fell with Satan. He somehow persuaded them to go with him. That must have been an indication of how amazing this creature was. They thought that he might have a chance of winning. They went with Satan and began a war against God. They want to dethrone God. A third of the angels went with them. We know them as demons. We're going to read the book of Mark and you're going to see demons appearing again and again and again. These 
Satan and his demons, Satan and his fallen hosts live in this world. They are turned against God. They want to dethrone Him. They have incited a massive cosmic rebellion. And we know that the rebellion did not remain in the spirit realm, but has in fact entered into humanity. Because that very same creature became a serpent, entered the garden, and before there was sin in the world, he tempted Adam and Eve, and they sinned. And the moment Adam and Eve sinned, a curse came upon the world. The sinful nature of Adam is passed on to everyone after him. And we are all now under the influence of sin. I mean, it's become so normal that we, we stop thinking about it as such an unnatural deviation from God's creation. It was not the original design that things would be as fallen and as broken as they are. But because of sin, things are broken. And now, when the Bible describes humanity, he describes humanity like this. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're darkened in our understanding. We're deceived in our minds. Again, in Ephesians 2, we are following the prince of the power of the air. All humanity, without exception, is born this way. We have hearts that we cannot trust. We have minds that cannot reason themselves back to God. We are deceived. We are dead, which means we cannot actually come to God and accomplish anything for Him. This is the hard truth that the Bible gives to humanity is that we're all sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And there's nothing we can do to fix our sinful condition. There are forces at play that are much powerful, much more powerful than us. In fact, some theologians in studying the Word, they've come up with phrases that capture the condition of fallen humanity. I'm going to point out two of them. First, total depravity. Total depravity. When theologians study what the Bible teaches about fallen man, they come up with this word, that humanity is totally depraved. It doesn't mean this. Let's just be clear. Total depravity doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they can possibly be. But it does mean this, that the inherent corruption of sin extends to every part of man's nature. In other words, sin has corrupted the mind, sin has corrupted the soul, sin has corrupted the body. It affects the way we think, it affects the way we feel, it affects the way we act. Total depravity also means that there's no spiritual good that we can do in relation to God. We can't do anything that pleases God in our fallen nature. Romans 8 is very clear about this, that the sinful mind is hostile to God and cannot do anything to please Him. That's the first phrase. Total depravity in sin, under the influence of sin, under the influence and leadership of Satan. All humanity has fallen there. Here's the second phrase. Total inability. Total inability. One theologian, Louis Burkhoff, described total ability like this. He says that the unrenewed sinner cannot do any act, however insignificant, which fundamentally meets with God's approval. And answers to the demands of God's holy law. And he cannot change his fundamental preference for sin. You hear that? He cannot change his preference for sin. He, he, the fallen man, and this is who I was, and this is who everyone who has uh, 
before they were a Christian, this is what they were, before they, uh, they got saved by the grace of God, this is what we were, we couldn't, in our strength, by our own initiative, we couldn't change our preference for sin. In other words, we had a preference for sin. We wanted sin. We wanted to pursue these things. And we couldn't do anything about it. We couldn't change it. That might ring true for some of you in your own life right now. You say, I don't want to sin. I don't like sin. But man, I can't stop sinning. I keep doing this again and again and again. I keep going after it again. And you're starting to realize something that God is trying to teach you by experience. It's this, that you are unable to change yourself. You can't. It's what the whole testimony of Scripture is revealing to us is that the fallen condition of man is so severe, not only that all of us has been affected by it, but we're affected in such a way that we can't do anything to fix ourselves. Here's our world. Here's our world. Riddled with the tragedy of sin. Ruled by the enemy of God. Swarming with demons who want nothing more than to see God's image bearers suffer in eternal torment. All of humanity crawls around the earth totally depraved in sin. Totally unable. Dead in their trespasses. Darkened in their mind. Deceived in their hearts dysfunctional, and totally unable to do anything about it. How's that for good news? Friends, by the way, this is why human religion doesn't work. It doesn't work. Because every human religion is about man's attempt to make life better for himself. It's, it's adding rituals or routines or disciplines, something to try to fix oneself. And here the Bible is saying... You can't fix yourself. If we will be fixed, it will not be because we fixed ourselves. It will be because God fixes us. There is no other way for humanity to be out of the predicament that it's in. This is why the gospel is far superior. All human religion. It's like trying to wash yourself clean as you swim in a river of mud. You're not getting anywhere. You can't do anything. You can't get out of it. It's the way you are. And here, we encounter this word at the very beginning of this gospel. It is the word, I just said it, gospel. It is an announcement. In the swirling mess of this depraved world, we have an announcement to make. And friends, this is why. That word gospel is why generation after generation, people have come back to this book and have loved it and have cherished it and have read it and reread it and read it and reread it. Why? Because the gospel is the greatest news they've ever heard and it transforms everything. It transforms everything. The gospel is not a list of directions for you to begin adding to your life, it is an announcement of good news. Here's our second heading. The first was that the biggest problem is sin. Here's the second heading. The greatest announcement is gospel. Mark 1.1. You can see it right there in your Bible. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That word gospel is thrown around 
in these days that maybe we cease to be amazed by it. Gospel is a genre of music. We can throw that word around talking about things as that's the gospel truth when we are particularly believing in something. I wonder though what the first readers of Mark would have heard when they heard the word gospel. What did, what did that mean to them when they are reading this for the first time? They're in the midst of a crooked world. They're in the midst of persecution. Sin swirls all around them. And they read, here's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you were Jewish, you would have had a certain background. You would have been trained in the Old Testament. You would have been raised there. And if you heard the word gospel, that wouldn't have been a brand new word to you. That word was used in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 and 10. Listen to this. The Jews would have had an understanding of what gospel meant. And so if you were a first century Jew, you read the gospel of Mark, you hear that word gospel, you would have maybe in your mind gone back to Isaiah 40, where it says, go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. And good news and good news, both those places, that's gospel. It's the same word. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. This was a prophecy in the Old Testament looking forward to the time of God's coming where He rules the nations and sets up a kingdom. That was good news. That was gospel when the Jews heard about glad tidings and they heard about gospel, what they have in their mind is God coming to set up a kingdom to punish wickedness and to eradicate it from the earth and to set up peace so that Jerusalem, so that Zion rejoices in the God who saves. What's interesting though, is that the Romans, even the pagan Romans, when they would have heard the word gospel, they would have had an interesting perspective as well. It was a word that was used even in Roman culture. In 9 BC, that's nine years before the birth of Christ, Caesar Augustus was born and announced. When he was announced, there, we've, we've discovered an inscription. Archaeologists have dug this, dug this up and they've seen this. It's fascinating because they also like to use the word gospel. But listen to how they use it. Describing the birth of Caesar Augustus, here's what they say, a savior for us and for those who come after us to make war cease, to create order everywhere. And whereas the birthday of God, and by God they mean Augustus, was the beginning of the world of the glad tidings, the gospel that have come to men through him. You see, even the Romans had this idea of a gospel coming, a king who would come, who would make Wars cease. Who would create order everywhere. The word gospel finds its origins in the military when there's battle going on, when the bullets are flying here and there and battles raging. A messenger might come from the front lines and he might come to those who are the ones behind the scenes and he would announce, victory, victory, victory. The war is soon over. We have declared victory. It is a message that there is now going to be peace. That the enemy has been defeated. 
as this word was picked up by Christians, it also began to grow in their understanding of what this meant, that there has been a Savior who would in reality make wars cease, who would in reality bring order everywhere, that wickedness would be done away with, that there would be true and complete victory brought to the world. When Mark starts off this book by using this word gospel, it would have sent chills down the spines of those persecuted Christians who were huddled in caves or in basements trying to worship. Victory! They would hear. There is victory. There's an announcement. There's good news. They would have been encouraged. It's not going to be like this forever. This world is harassed by the devil. This world is plagued by sin. It's dysfunctional, it's broken. And here is the announcement of good news, of victory, the dawn of a new era, the coming of a new epoch. It's the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It would have thrilled them. Good news has come. Good news is here. This is the greatest announcement in the history of the world, it is good news. It is gospel. And listen, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here's our third heading. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. It's His gospel. See, God looks down on a darkened humanity, swirling with sin and rebellion and dysfunction, and pain, and brokenness. And some of you in your lives are experiencing some of that even this morning, I imagine. You're battling with your own sin. You're facing the brokenness of the world, be it by facing death, or betrayal, or tension in relationships. You're facing some of the brokenness. And right here, we have in Mark at the beginning, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. God sees all the brokenness And His solution to the problem is not to give you a system of rules to begin following. It's not to give you some rituals you need to add to your life. It's not a behavior modification program. Listen, it is Jesus Christ. This is the hope of the world. This is the hope of all humanity. Here, God presents forward the only one who can undo the curse. The only one who has authority over Satan. The only one who could subdue demons. The only one who could heal. The only one who could forgive. The only one who could save. God has a solution to all the brokenness in the world. And it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has come. And the announcement of good news is not about anything other than Jesus. He has come. It's all about Him. And so if you ask, how is God going to deal with the sin? The wickedness? The tragedy? The dysfunction? All of this, how could this possibly be overcome? Here's your answer. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And let's be honest. It's really easy look out in the world and see all the sin and the brokenness out there, isn't it? You can look at all the things that you don't like and you could point at those and we see a bunch of things that are problematic in our world. All kinds of tragedies, all kinds of dysfunction. 
But can you also be honest about the problems that you find within your own heart? Everyone in the room is fallen. Every one of us knows what it is like to be in sin. None of us have been completely glorified. All of us are in need of growth and change. We have issues, don't we? I mean, no one here gathers as a Christian every week because they've got it all figured out. Quite the opposite. We come because we're desperately needy. We know that all our needs will not be met by trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. All we have is Christ. And we come again to remember who He is, what He's done, and to put our faith in Him for another week. I want to ask you, especially those of you who have not given your lives in submission to Jesus Christ, have not turned from sin to trust Him as your Lord and Savior, doesn't your conscience, doesn't your conscience shout that you have need? Don't you sense that there is a guilt within? Aren't you like us that you've experienced failure? What could fix you? Better yet, who? could possibly fix you? Who can forgive you? Who can transform you? Who can save you? The answer comes right here, the first verse of the first chapter of probably the first Gospel, and it is this, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's your only hope. He has come. God's solution to the chaos of the world, the tragedy of destruction, the shame that we experience, the turmoil that racks our consciences, God's solution to our sin and our guilt is Jesus Christ. He came not to be served, Mark 10.45, but to serve. He came to serve you. And then it says, He came to give His life as a ransom for many. He came to die for your sins. He came to be punished in the place of anyone who would trust Him. So that you don't have to pay for your sins forever. And then He took upon Himself the wrath of God, the punishment that you deserve. He took upon Himself. He rose from the dead on the third day. He is the victorious one over sin and over Satan and over death and over hell. And He extends free forgiveness to all who repent and trust Him. And if you're like, I'm not sure who Jesus is, friends, this is who He is. He's the suffering servant who came to save the world. He's sent from heaven. He's the divine Son of God. In fact, how about this? Let's look at how Mark describes Him in verse 1. Who is this man? Who is this one that is described as the one that the good news is all about? First, we, we get this name, Jesus. I'm sure you've heard this name. Uh, this is the name that God gave him. In Matthew chapter 1, God tells Joseph to give the boy's name uh, the name of Jesus. It was the Greek version of a popular name, Joshua. It was actually a pretty common name even then. Lots of people were being named Jesus. It means God is salvation or God saves. He is a man. He's born of a virgin. 
He was raised like any other child would be raised, except for he didn't have a sin nature, as the Bible goes on to tell. He is Jesus. Name meaning God saves. He is also Christ. That's not his last name. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It is Greek. In Greek, it's Christos. It's the Greek equivalent to the word Messiah. He is the Jesus. He's described as the Messiah. Messiah, what does that mean? Anointed one is what it means. In the Old Testament, kings would be anointed as a recognition of their kingship. It became used to refer to a Messiah, a single Messiah, a coming king, one who would be anointed, the very anointed one of God who would make wars to cease, who would bring peace and righteousness, who would set up a kingdom, who would initiate a new covenant. This was the Messiah. And here in the first verse, this Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is God's appointed King of humanity. And he is called here also the Son of God. This is an incredibly bold claim. This is an outright claim to divinity. He is claiming, Mark is claiming as he writes this, that Jesus is God's Son. He is the Son of God. He is the second person of the Trinity. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Son has entered into the creation and He is here to save God has entered creation. He is no mere man, though He is a man. He is a man who is also God. He has two natures. He is the Son of God. And He has come to save all God's children. He is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. This is a bold claim in one verse, isn't it? Jesus, perfect man. Christ, perfect appointed King, Son of God, divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, this is the one that God has said has come to be the bringer of good news. This is Christ. Charles Hodge, speaking of the divinity of Christ, says it like this, the Scriptures with equal clearness declare that Christ was Truly God. All divine names and titles are applied to Him. He is called God, the mighty God, the great God, God over all, Jehovah, Lord, the Lord of lords and the King of kings. All divine attributes are ascribed to Jesus. He is declared to be omnipresent, omniscient, almighty, immutable, the same yesterday, today, and today, forever. He is set forth as the creator and upholder and ruler of the universe. All things were created by Him and for Him, and by, th- by Him all things consist. He is the object of worship for all intelligent creatures, even the highest All the angels, all creatures between man and God are commanded to prostrate themselves before Him. He is the object of all the religious sentiments of reverence, love, faith, and devotion. To Him, men and angels are responsible for their character and conduct. He required that men should honor Him as they honored their Father, that they should exercise the same faith in Him that they do in God. He declared that He and the Father are one, that those who had seen Him had seen the Father. He calls all men unto Him. He promises to forgive all their sins. He sends them the Holy Spirit. He gives them rest and peace. He promises to raise them up on the last day to give them eternal life. God is not more and cannot promise more or do more than Christ is said to be. To promise. 
and to do. He has therefore been the Christian's God from the very beginning, in all ages, and in all places. Friends, we worship the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. He is God in the flesh. Can you trust Him? Can you trust Him to be your friend? You can. Can you trust Him to never leave you or forsake you? He's made that promise for all His children. Can you trust Him to forgive all your sins? Yes, this is what the book is going to show. That He came to forgive sins. Can you trust Him to hold you? Never let you go to hold you fast even when you are prone to wander. Yes, you can trust Him. Can you trust Him to fix your broken heart? Yes. Can you trust Him to transform you from the inside out? Yes. Can you trust Him to fix this dysfunctional, cursed world? Yes, you can. He is the King and He will set up a kingdom and He will reign forever and we with Him. This is it, friends. This is all we've been longing for. This is our heart's greatest desire. This is is the hunger. This is what we've been craving. It is to know God through Jesus Christ. There is no higher privilege than to know God. And there's no possible way to know God except through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, we will be restless until we rest in Him. So what that means is if you have not come, or if you have strayed, Or if you've been a backslider, the words of Jesus I extend to you now, come. Come if you're weary. Come if you're burdened. He will give you rest. Rest for your souls. Come to have your sins forgiven. Come if you're thirsty. Come if you're hungry. And eat, feast on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And you will find your soul to be satisfied. These words, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, introduce us to this book. And let me finish with this. There is no neutrality with Jesus Christ. Right? There is no neutrality with Him. We'll see that more clearly as we go through, but I want to tell you that now. We are faced, better yet, we are confronted by Jesus Christ and His claims. And as C.S. Lewis has once said, he's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he's Lord. If he's a liar, let's disband and go home. Why are we here? If he's a lunatic, the same thing. We have no reason to listen to his teachings. But if he's Lord as he has claimed to be, as the testimony bears witness to, if he is Lord, then he deserves all our praise, all our devotion, all our lives to be laid down at his feet. If he is Lord. And friends, what we are going to encounter here is unshakable evidence that he is Lord. And so we must bow. Jesus is our only hope. The biggest problem we will ever face in this life is sin. The best announcement in the world is this message of gospel, good news. And the greatest hope, the center of that gospel is this, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray.
So Lord, I pray that those who have not yet come to Christ would be compelled by your Holy Spirit to come. They would find their sins forgiven, their life saved, meaning understood, their purpose understood. Lord, they'd find all the things they've been longing for and craving fulfilled in Christ. It would not necessarily make life easier, as the first Christians knew so well. But Lord, it would transform everything. And so Lord, I pray that you would draw to yourself those who have not yet turned to you. And Lord, I pray that those of us who are trusting you would be all the more thrilled to remember who Jesus is. And as we behold him, we would want to become like him. As we reflect on him, we would take up our cross along with him, laying down our lives, dying daily in an effort to serve him. Jesus, we say, you are Lord. No one else is, nothing else replaces you. You are Lord. And so we want to follow you, and we cannot do that without your help. So aid us, we ask, as we seek to obey you in all things. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.